I have just got back from a wonderful holiday. As a family, we were lucky enough to get to go to France for a couple of weeks. We had one by the beach and we had one in the Alps. I won't go into too many details, but what struck me was how much God speaks in times of rest and restoration. Having spent the last two years of my life essentially studying God, I reveled in the fact that I had not packed a single theology book. Despite still having several assignments to complete by September, I know, um, I was going to take a break, a well-earned break. And obviously I would pray and I would read scripture, but that would be the extent of it. I was going to switch off. The problem with that theory, though, is that we have a God who is holy. And what I mean by holy is we have a God who is utterly unique. He's all-powerful and he's the source of all life. And because of his very nature, is worthy and demanding of our worship. Now, I'm not putting down the reading of a few verses of scripture And morning prayer, I'm not putting that down at all. This is both amazing and necessary, and it should be a bit like breathing for a Christian. But whilst on holiday, I was going to see things, and I was going to experience things. And let's be honest, as a helpless foodie, I was going to eat things that were going to lead me to worship. The huge but light and fluffy brioche that I ate warm every morning from the local bakery, for example, was a thing to be praised. Even the walk down the hill and then up again in the sweltering heat became a time of mouth-watering anticipation and gratitude, particularly when James did the walking. (laughs) And then, in the Alps, every time I moved or looked up, I was confronted by breathtaking mountainous scenery. Many of my photos look like we as a family have been plonked in front of a movie set's green screen, making it pretty hard to believe that we were actually standing where we were standing. But the biggest draw to my eye every morning and every time I walked out of our chalet was this mountain. Now, it's not a particularly special mountain, but I'm completely in love with this mountain. It hovers over the small village that we stayed in, and it never failed to catch my eye. What this photo doesn't show you, though, is the eight foot or so, you still can't even see it in this picture, but the eight foot or so cross that stands on its peak, which is completely visible to the naked eye. And it was this view of this cross on top of this mountain that repeatedly brought worship of God into sharp focus for me. Now, I wear a cross around my neck, and I see it in my reflection every day. I have a cross in my study. I have visual reminders of my faith dotted all over my home. So what was it about this distant cross that kept drawing my attention? Was it the magnificence of its mountain top position? Was it simply that I had enough time to take it in and ponder its wonder? Was it its proximity to up there, to where we imagine heaven is, a place that we might have glimpsed or tasted through the Holy Spirit, but not yet fully experienced? 
You see, I think it was probably all of those things and more. Every morning whilst I was there, I sat in front of that view with that cross and I did morning prayer. I did it along with millions of other people all over the world. I read the same Psalms, the same Old Testament passage, the same New Testament passage, prayed the same collect and used the same liturgy as my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though I was essentially on my own. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are taken out of whatever church tradition we belong to or affiliate with, and we are united with all Christians. And it's the Lord's Prayer that is the subject of our summer sermon series that we started last week. This prayer is the foundation of all of our prayers. It is simple and it covers all the bases. It can be used in its own right or as a guide or short manual on how to pray. And today we're going to look together at the significance of its opening lines. The first is known as the address and the second line known as the first petition. Now we begin with the familiar words, Our Father in heaven. And it's these words that set up the whole prayer by clarifying who exactly it is that we are praying to. It's this opening line that is central to our understanding of prayer in general. Jesus opens this simple prayer structure or prayer scaffolding, as Tom Wright likes to call it, with us addressing God as Father, just as he does throughout the Gospels. Immediately, we are invited into the intimate and close relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is passing on to us something of his priceless relation to God. In the very first line of this simple prayer, we are adopted into the family of God. When we hear the gospel, confess our sins and place our faith in Jesus, we are born into God's kingdom and we become his children. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit right there and then and the Spirit empowers us to live for him. And we are secure in the knowledge that our salvation is for eternity. Calling God Father is that significant. And it is that simple. And it's the very simplicity of prayer that Jesus is at pains to get across to us in the Lord's Prayer. And that is something that we can easily forget in our faith. We are hardwired to complicate and over-intellectualize our faith. Now, I'm not saying that intellectual study is a bad thing. Not at all. I've been at it for two years solid. But it shouldn't interfere with our basic faith, which should be open, honest, humble, and unpretentious in its trust of a good, good father like that of children. Jesus champions childlike faith more than once in the Gospels. In Matthew 18.3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A childlike faith is not childish or immature. It's a faith that focuses on our understanding of our own 
neediness and dependency upon God and sees how simply small and vulnerable we are without his care and protection. What is so striking in this regard about Jesus is that he, becoming fully human on earth, was vulnerable and childlike. Not only in his faith, he didn't move without praying to the Father, but also in his physical being. As a baby, he couldn't tend to his own needs and he relied upon others to survive. As an adult, I struggle to keep hold of my childlike faith. Perhaps this is why Jesus emphasizes it so much. It's hard not to rely on yourself. Difficult not to feel responsible, yet powerless, when things go wrong. As a small child, when something went wrong, I relied on my parents. When I was scared, I trusted in their protection and provision. I believed that they would protect me, that they would do the right thing, that they had my best interest at heart. Now I know that in reality, not all parents do the right thing, and nor do they always have the best interest of their children at heart. But we all have that dependent trust until the brokenness of the world challenges it. And in the full circle of life, many of us will end up right where we started, completely dependent on others for our well-being. And it's this vulnerability that fills us with dread as adults. For we are a people who are bombarded daily with images, adverts, ideas and concepts that enforce the value of being dependent, independent. The fear of being needy, dependent and vulnerable are the very things that terrify us the most. Conversely, it's these three things that our love for and trust of God demands of us a childlike faith. When we say our, we recognize that God is our father and we are his children. A childlike faith is a challenge. But we can be comforted and we can be reassured because when we pray our father, we are referring to someone who cares deeply for us personally. And not only does he have the capacity to care for us deeply, he has the capacity to care for all deeply. And because of this deep love, he loves us when we get it wrong as well as when we try to get it right. Now the word our is a possessive pronoun. God gives himself to us, our Father. So that when we are his, he is also ours. Now saying our, according to the theologian Frederick Dale Brunner, is the joy of the gospel. In John 20, 17, Jesus clarifies clearly that God is both our father as well as his father. When he says to Mary Magdalene, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. God is not simply like a father. God is father. 
We can trust him and his promises with childlike faith. Unlike the things of the world, he will not let us down or forsake us. It really is impossible to measure how significant this is to our lives. It's both an honour and a blessing to be allowed to say, Our Father. And it's also important to remember that when we say, Our, we pray with and on behalf of others. We do not need to pray in public with lofty words or grandiose gestures, because as Jesus says a few verses back in verse 5 to 8, God sees us pray anyway, and he knows what we need to pray before we pray. When we say our, we pray as an inclusive community. Our prayers should not be selfish or self-centered. All of us are God's loved children. We pray on behalf of both fellow Christians and the whole world. The Lord's Prayer from the very first word is an intercessory prayer. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we speak for all the children of God. The words I, me and mine are simply omitted. That simple three-letter word has saved Christians from the self-centered approach which would so easily characterize our prayers in a world obsessed with the selfie, the number of likes or comments that we get on social media and how many online followers we have. We live in a world obsessed with the me, the I, and the mine. And the omission of these words in the prayer led me to reflect upon how often I make a decision or a choice that positively impacts others and isn't just self-seeking. Currently, the world is completely preoccupied with our use of plastic, and rightly so. I have several keep cups and the desire to use them. But I am ashamed to confess that I forget the cup more often than I remember it. And this is not because I am a terrible person, but because I am wired not to be too concerned about things that don't directly impact me. My day is not drastically affected by whether I have my coffee in a non-recyclable cup or a keep cup. I'm not really thinking that deeply about those people who live alongside sea that has waves of plastic that I could have contributed to. Nor do I consider the wildlife who may get caught up and die in plastic that should never have found its way into the seas. On the other hand, though, do I regularly leave home without my phone or my wallet? Very rarely. Because that would have a very negative and inconvenient impact on my day. Now, we can use this kind of model for all manner of things that we do, frequently or infrequently. When we go to the ballot box, are we voting for something that best serves us or that best serves others? Jesus teaches us to pray this way, to ward against the selfishness to which we are so prone 
this daily prayer and model for prayer is so much more countercultural and radical than I had ever given it credit for. If I had known how rebellious and challenging it was in my teens, I might just have given it the time of day. It tumbled out of my mouth on a daily basis at school. Not once did I stop to think, and nor did anyone explain to me the significance of it. It is so out of this world, so nonconformist, so utopian, so divine and heavenly, but yet at the same time, it is so very ours, yours and mine. Jesus gives it to us. We get to taste heaven because Jesus invites us to. And it's the expression of heaven within the prayer that guards against us domesticating and becoming too friendly and flippant with God. The words in heaven lift and stretch our idea of Father and remind us that we have a God who is all-knowing, one who is in and around and above everything. When, as believers, we pray the second line, hallowed be your name, we are asking for God to be set above us, to be central and important. We ask that he be treated as God, worthy of his name. We are desiring to see God truly honoured as God in the world. And when we say those words, we look forward to a time when all will acknowledge God as Lord. The importance and significance of God's status and worthiness of worship is evident by the position Jesus gives it in the prayer. It's the first petition. And yet there is such contrast in this prayer. We have that closeness of saying, our Father. And then we have the otherness of heaven and the hallowedness of God, the mysteriousness of faith. Our God is not man-made, not invented to control or manipulate like some of the gods of the pagan religions of the time. But he is creator and father of all and he dwells in heaven. This address drives home the tension of our worship of a God by whom we are intimately known and yet, at the same time, is Lord of all creation. When we say the words in heaven and ask for his name to be hallowed, we are reinforcing God's sovereignty over the whole universe. He is honoured, admired and worshipped because he is holy and because he is worthy. God is not only intimately our father, he is also the God and creator of the entire universe. 
And the words in heaven are the ones that right-size us and forbid us to forget who it is that we address when we pray. You see, without this qualification, without this otherness, this unfathomable how-can-it-be-ness, we might just find ourselves worshipping something made in our own image. These two lines that open the Lord's Prayer are simple and radical. But at the same time, and in equal measure, they are wonderful and mysterious. Wonderful in that we have a relationship that we do not deserve. Wonderful in that it is open to all. And wonderful in that they enable us to unite with Christians everywhere. And they are mysterious in that we address a God whom we will never fully understand in this lifetime. We address a God who is holy and created us, a God who is love and a God who loves us intimately and deeply. How can we ever respond to this gift that we have been given in the Lord's Prayer. Well, I invite you to listen to the words of Psalm 63, verses 3 to 4. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name... I will lift up my hands. We praise and we worship. And we can say the Lord's Prayer again, now, together, united with Christians everywhere. We can say it because it's ours. Jesus has given it to us. And as we say it, let's ponder each word And relish the privilege of being free and able to worship our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.